This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bellazoo, the amazing suppliers of Mediterranean and Middle Eastern ingredients. Their range includes premium olive oils and vinegars, pestos, pastes, and preserved lemons. And if you haven't yet tried their signature Rosa Rissa, which is a staple in my fridge, then you are in for a treat. Bellazoo started 30 years ago when two friends, George and Adam, drove a van full of olives back from France. They began supplying chefs, then home cooks, and have never looked back. Bellazoo ingredients are restaurant quality, and I've genuinely been a fan for a very long time. Their tahini from Nablus has a very special place in my kitchen shelf. It's so nutty and flavoursome. Their ingredients are such a simple way to enhance other flavours, and they transform any dish. Bellazoo source and develop their products very carefully, without compromising on quality, and have gone above and beyond in their commitment to the environment and to looking after their suppliers. To find out more, go to waitrose.com forward slash Bellazoo to discover the range for yourself. I'm Yasmin Khan, and you're listening to Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. Throughout the season, my co-host, Alison Okavy and I are going to be talking to a range of fantastic guests from many walks of life and asking them to share their stories through the food memories, dishes and ingredients that mean the most to them. Hi, Alison. How are you doing? Hi, Yasmin. I'm really well, thank you. How about you? I'm good. I'm good. Very much settled into cosy season now, I think. Kind of uh, invested in a new hat and gloves and scarf this week. So I'm feeling kind of ready for the elements. It's that kind of weather, isn't it? When it's weather like this, it's a bit colder, crisp in the morning. It's real kind of mash weather and slow cooking, which is great. It is. And I've been... I've been carving a lot of pumpkins this week because near where I live, there's this great place called the Dalston Curve Garden where they have pumpkin carving every year. So I went and did that a few days ago, which was fun. And I've now, with just a few days to go, I'm trying to assemble a Halloween costume for a party that I'm going to. Wow. Um, I love this time of year for many reasons, but mainly because I can whip out the old pumpkin pie recipe that I love. I was going to say, do you cook with it? Pumpkin pie, I think, is one of my favourite things to make and eat and bake and the way it fills up the kitchen with a smell of like cinnamon and nutmeg and ginger. So so that's what I'll be doing with all the, the pumpkins I've been carving. I'll tell you what, they're lovely, just with soup as well and, you know, roast it, have has it as, having it as a side veg just so much it's so flexible sweet or savory it's just delicious pumpkin season um well i'm very excited about our guest this week because she is someone who i think embraces the pleasure of good food it's the brilliant food writer ruby tando uh, I'm sure some people will recognise her name. Any fans of the Great British Bake Off out there might remember that she was a finalist on the show back in 2013 when she was just 21, which I find shocking. Um, but she's done so many interesting things since then, such as written two cookbooks, released a book called Eat Up, which is all about the pleasure of eating and which pretty pushes back against judgment and guilt. Have you, have you read that book, Alison? 
Robin. Yeah, I have. It's a really important book. It's about the pleasure and fun of food. That's a perfect way to describe it, Alison. And she's just published her third cookbook, Cook As You Are, which also rejects a few traditional conventions in food writing in that it really pioneers this approach to inclusivity. Uh, Ruby's kind of considered the experience of her readers at every level and the recipes are aimed at those with limited energy or time, those with different abilities or income, those with sensory impairment. She's such a refreshing and inspiring writer. Not only has she written cookbooks, she's written for The Guardian, Waitress Food, for Vittles, Elle, The New Yorker. She's a, a busy lady. She's been described as someone who is allergic to food snobbery. And for me, that really sums up what she's about. I really welcome her outspoken voice um, on a whole range of topics. Yeah, when she doesn't agree with something, she is not scared of being outspoken on it, which is is really refreshing. We need more voices like Ruby's, if you ask me. We certainly do. Anyway, here is our conversation with food writer Ruby Tando. doing hi i'm good thank you i was really excited to kind of have you on life on a plate for so many reasons you're someone who's really redefined what food writing looks like and also what it could achieve and whilst we're here to talk about your new book i just really wanted to start by applauding you because in my mind you're an absolutely fearless voice and you're working hard to shift people's perceptions not only about food but how it relates to the world around us so thank you that's very kind. Um, thank you. I mean, you know, one person's fearless is another person's gobby. So <laughs> I think that's um, that that's a judgment call how you how you position me in that sense. But I mean, I kind of arrived in this field kind of by accident, I guess, in a way. And um, it, it's been a slow process of trying to find my feet and figure out what kind of thing I want to do, what kind of writing I, I want to do and what my message is in a sense so it it's been it's been slow trying to like position myself and sometimes I position myself like in reaction to other people like I definitely don't want to be like them and sometimes I've had like a more positive sway like this is what I stand for or whatever but yeah it, it, it's trial and error and I think most of us doing this food writing thing are kind of still bit by bit figuring that out for ourselves. You are just a breath of fresh air. You're, you're so different from so many other uh, food writers. Have you always been fearless at, you know, at school? And, and is that just how you were made up? <laughs> I, I think there are definitely times when I have been, how do I put it? Uh, quick to say what I think about things. I think that's been quite a constant theme in my life. Uh, sometimes not in a particularly useful way. But it's, it's a weird split for me, actually. I think a lot of the time I'm very quiet. Uh, a lot of the time I'm very um, just willing to kind of bend and to fit in around other people and stuff. I, I can be very uh, malleable in so many ways. And then every so often something will pique my interest and I kind of spring to life and I uh, kind of assert myself, sometimes almost disproportionately. But... Um, usually it, it, it's a weird balance. It's, it's very split, I would say. I feel like you're being, I don't know, I hope this isn't overstepping, but I feel like you, you're being a bit ungenerous towards yourself there <laughs> because it's almost as if kind of you're being a bit apologetic for sometimes kind of 
saying some of the stuff you you say, and of course I don't know the ins and outs of your life, but I would say that, you know, I'm also someone who to a fault actually is the biggest, I think, challenge I have that I'm just way too reactive. Do you know what I mean? I just, I react to things and, and, and stuff. And I think when, when people are like that, I tend to give myself a hard time about it. But from the outside, what it seems like you do then is, I don't know, you do drop like ruby truth bombs everywhere. You know, <laughs> I we had this again when me and Alison were talking, I was kind of reading through some things in, ahead of this interview. And one of the funny, I mean, you're very funny, but one of the funniest things kind of I saw you say was that... Um, you know, you'd never let read Elizabeth David and you don't think, you know, anybody really has. <laughs> and I was like, Alison, I haven't. And then I was like, have you? It was a big confession time <laughs> that none of us had actually read Elizabeth David cover to cover, who for such a long time has been considered this archetypal, iconic food writer. I thought I was the only one who actually hadn't. <laughs> so I'm pleased to hear this. I'm pleased everyone else is coming forward now that I've been the sacrificial lamb. So <laughs> thank exactly. you. <laughs> but I do think you push the, push the boundaries of food writing and cookbooks and I think your new book, Cook As You Are, Recipes for Real Life, Hungry Cooks and Messy Kitchens Mm. is just such a brilliant example of that. I mean, I want to start by asking you, you know, did it surprise you that you wrote another recipe book? Um, It did, yes, because I swore. So I did a couple of books um, a few years ago. I did one baking book and then one kind of general recipe book. And I absolutely swore down to anyone who'd listened that I'd never do it again. And... um, (laughs) Obviously, I've done it again, but it felt so different this time, like genuinely and um, in a way that surprised even me. I think when I did the other two, it's tricky. I'd just come off Bake Off and so I wasn't really sure what I was doing and I didn't really, I wasn't really sure what my approach to food was going to be and what I stood for and all of that stuff. And so the books, like, I mean, I put everything into them and I'm, I'm still proud of them. But I still am not sure what their function was. Like, who were they really, really for? What did they stand for? Um, and I didn't want to kind of do that again. I didn't want to put something out just for the sake of it. I mean, there's a million recipes online. You can get anything you want to. So for me, a cookbook has to be an act of curation almost rather than creating recipes. It's about bringing stuff together. It's about tailoring stuff for specific people or about specific cuisines and really having that vision and and having a purpose for it rather than just like, here are my recipes because I'm great. It has to say something. So I knew that I didn't want to do a cookbook that didn't really have that mission. And when the idea came to me to do Cook As You Are and to do this thing that was all about meeting people where they're at in their kitchen, no matter their ability, their budget, all of this stuff. I was like, okay, that's what it is. Like, this is the thing that will galvanize me to do all this recipe testing and to write all these words and put this book out because I actually, I can see what it's for and it feels purposeful to me. This new book feels really different, Ruby. The recipes feel really inclusive with their simple but diverse ingredients and you've given substitutions for ingredients that if people don't have the ones that are listed, the tone that you've used throughout the book is really warm and accessible. And one thing that is striking is it's fully illustrated. There are no photographs. What made you decide to do that? So basically, I didn't want this to be photo-led for a number of reasons. I think one of the things is that when you have a photo shoot like that for a cookbook, it is really expensive 
And that means that the book's more expensive and it means the book is bulkier. So it, it, it's bigger, it's more expensive, it's glossier, it's more aspirational. So I didn't want it to be those things. So I kind of wanted to veer away from photography for that reason. But also, I mean, I wrote this book in the middle of uh, the first lockdown. I, I knew that I wanted it to meet people where they're in their kitchens. It's called Cook As You Are. So the idea of having these photographs done in one set kitchen, like a studio kitchen, which presents just like one vision of how it is to cook and probably just one person cooking and that'd be me. It just didn't feel right. And I knew I wanted to show loads of different kitchens and dining rooms and people cooking and just people from every background, people of every size and shape, people of every ethnicity cooking like as they are. And the only way realistically to do that was illustrations. And I'm, I'm actually so pleased that me and the, my editor and everyone made that call because the illustrations that Sinead Park has done are so cute and they're so beautiful and full of life. And they just, they, they make it about more than just what the food looks like at the end. It's about the process of cooking. And that's really what this was about. And then also on that point, I think, you know, certainly you know, with, with some of the cuisine that I've, I've written about, there is this expectation around food in the way it's photographed for cookbooks or for magazines being styled in a way that's like got particular colors in it or has particular textures, you know, like famously, you know, people always talk about kind of like brown food as being like a bad thing. I do think people in the food media now, it's just like, well, yeah, that's a recipe, but like, how does it look, you know, as opposed to, you know, a lot of the recipes from, you know, Pakistan, where my heritage is or Iran, it's not about how it looks. It's about how it tastes. Absolutely. But you know what? I feel like even, even these brown foods, so things that, you know, don't photograph particularly well like I don't even think it's that they look bad I really do think it's about the camera and about what we expect from a photograph because like if I see a, a dinner table that's laden with loads of different bowls of stuff and stews and you know things that don't have the form and don't have the pop and the color that you expect from food photography like when I'm in front of it it's absolutely beautiful and if I try to train my camera on it it, it becomes a mess and I think yeah, it's just, it's just about appreciating the con the food within the context that it was intended for. I think that seems vital. Your titles are great. You're really focusing on, you know, you've got the effortless cod in a red lentil and tomato and lemongrass broth. You know, they're just having effortless in it. It just encourages people to do it. But also you've got no waste whole cauliflower cheese. In that recipe, you're kind of encouraging people to kind of avoid food waste and all the way through it. But also you've got the permission to substitute bits in the recipe and you know loads of ideas of if you can't get this try this is that how you naturally cook at home yeah here's the thing I have uh bedroom cookbooks and I have kitchen cookbooks and they are two really distinct categories for me and I think um it's probably true for a lot of people to be honest so my bedroom cookbooks are actually like are the Ottolenghi's and that that kind of cookbook that I look through and I salivate over and I really enjoy just imagining and fantasizing about this food and I seldom actually <laughs> make it I seldom actually bring that energy to the kitchen and kind of stand there with 500 ingredients and make it come true and then I have my kitchen cookbooks which tend to be more 
like the Nigel Slaters and the, there's a few others and actually a lot of recipe blogs and stuff that I turn to these days as well. The are the ones that I actually find useful for my day-to-day cooking. And I knew that this cookbook, I wanted it to be a kitchen cookbook. I wanted it to be the one that you actually cook from. So it had to be flexible. It had to be realistic. And I know that so often that you'll have a tin of tomatoes in and a recipe will say uh, maybe call for fresh tomatoes and you're thinking, can I substitute that? And I am always having those conversations with myself. I'm always in dialogue with a cookbook trying to figure out how much can I push this? And I know that a lot of other people are. So I preempted that and included a million (laughs) variations and things that I, I hope will make it more convenient and more flexible for people and just so they can tailor recipes to meet them. One of the things that I felt when I was reading the book is that it feels like, as we've discussed earlier, it feels like a real antidote to what food is conventionally presented like in in cookbooks. And I know you've spoken out a lot about, you know, the things that you found challenging in the current food media landscape. But what would you like to see UK food media do differently? I mean, it's really it's really tricky to give an answer to that because, I mean, there are a million things and it feels like me and so many other people, you as well, have been shouting about this for ages. So it's just, there comes a point where you're like, well, I think it's clear at this point. So just some people who seem to like make a living from being offensive and discriminatory, they need to go. And uh, in general, I think more opportunities need to be given to loads of people from diverse backgrounds, people who kind of cook from with a different perspective, who just bring something different than just like the same old, same old. For me, that's that's pretty much where we're at. I, it's not like I think, oh, you know, people in my cohort are good and everyone else is bad. It's, it, it's really not that at all. It's just, I, I think, the important thing for writing about anything and especially writing about food, which is so exciting and so evocative and so close to people's hearts, is to have curiosity and to have some humility. I think it's about entering into things knowing that you're not going to know it all and being realistic and being humble about that. And I think that can so easily be lost. And so honestly, on a practical level, I just think a little bit of that would go a long, long way in food media. So rather than discovering a cuisine or dismissing it out of hand or whatever it is, just having curiosity and I think so much respect and mutuality and care will follow from that. One of the things you mentioned is you know, you wrote this book during the pandemic. Did you find the pandemic, and we're still in it, of course, um, has it changed how you personally cook and eat? I, I wish I could use it as an excuse, but actually my um, slightly haphazard approach to cooking like predates the pandemic and it stayed the same throughout. I mean, I go through periods and I think I don't know if this is particularly common or not, but like I go through periods where I'll cook loads, I'll try loads of new recipes, and then there'll be maybe even a couple of months where I just cannot face it. And I'll make the things that I, like a really small roster of things that I know well, that I know don't take too much time, don't take too much energy, and I just fall back into the rut. So for me, it's it's there are ebbs, (laughs) ebbs and flows of this kind of creativity and like kitchen energy but it yeah is independent of the pandemic I can't use that as an excuse for that I guess the reason I asked that question is I feel I had quite a difficult relationship to food during the pandemic in the I basically completely lost my appetite and I just did not 
want to cook. And I guess some people, you know, during times of stress, they just, food becomes this thing which they cannot relate to. And I remember, you know, everybody else I felt in the world was like baking sourdough and like baking banana bread. And I was like, supposedly a food writer and I literally was just eating cheese sandwiches and I remember I saw like Samin Nosrat posted this photo about like six months in I think it was like a toasted cheese sandwich and she was like I'm really sorry I've not posted anything I literally can't bring myself to cook and I just felt so like relieved that there was someone else out there in the food world that also just you know I just I just have got so many takeaways in the last year more than like (laughs) any other point in my life and do you have any tips for people when they get to that point where just you cannot bring yourself to cook and then you just feel terrible about it I mean well firstly I'm sorry that you have been feeling that way because it's just it's not nice is it and and I can relate to it and it's just it's exhausting and then there's also I I know what you're talking about that like compounded sense of Uh, kind of failure because you are a food person so to speak so you're like I should be better than this and then you're kind of cracking into a ready meal again but I mean for me the thing that that helps more than anything is just not doing what we seem to have been doing and adding that layer of shame I mean it's it's hard enough if you if you don't have the energy to cook or you just don't have the the headspace you can't face it. it that's hard enough and then when you add shame and embarrassment and you flogging yourself for it, it just makes it 10 times worse. So when I get my, and this happens, you know, multiple times a week, sometimes uh, when I get my kind of supermarket um, ready meal, you know, one of the ones you literally put in the microwave, like I do not beat myself up for it because it is frankly quite delicious. A lot of the time I really enjoy them. I know some people don't, but I like them. And it's keeping me going. And I would rather that I ate that than stood at the stove with a real grump huff on and just like powered through making a dinner for what? To impress who? Like, it's just not worth it. So, I mean, there's literally a bit in the book that's, I I can't remember what it's called, but it's something like a, a reminder about baked beans, which is exactly about this. Like sometimes you can just open a tin of beans I don't want you cooking from stuff in the book if it's going to make you absolutely miserable. So, yeah, I'm all for these kind of, um, for cutting corners and for just doing whatever you need to do to get by. So I'd love to maybe like take a little step back and talk a bit about what food was like for you growing up and how how you developed this interest in food um so you're you grew up in south end on sea in essex what did food look like for you when you were growing up my parents did a lot of cooking they still do um, my mum really enjoys cooking i think it's, it's kind of like the highlight of her day is getting to be a bit creative in the kitchen but to be honest when uh when i was younger and living at home the, it wasn't so much about being creative because my parents had like four young children at the time and, you know, jobs and not that much money to go around and stuff like that. So it was about just getting as much food on the table as possible on a budget. So we did that, and but they did that with uh, quite a lot of pride and they had their cookbooks that they kind of used to guide them in that, a lot of vegetarian cookery to keep it affordable and lots of stews and soups and and things like that. So 
honestly just a, very similar to cooking to what loads of people kind of grow up with but yeah it, it was always a highlight it was always something that was kind of a talking point of the day and I think I took that little bit of interest and absolutely ran with it when I became obsessed with reading cookbooks and and cooking myself and all of that because you, st- you actually started cooking at quite a young age didn't you here's the thing I started reading cookbooks at a very young age like I was I would literally read them before I could properly read and write when I learned to actually cook it was probably when I was a teenager and that, that's because I was obsessed with uh, Nigella's How to Be a Domestic Goddess. So I made cheesecakes like multiple times a month and that was kind of the beginning of the actual cooking. But yeah, the, the reading of the cookbooks, the perusing them predates that. You were cooking multiple cheesecakes a month, but yeah, at the same time, I know in the past you've written about having um, having had an eating disorder. What role did cooking have for you then? Yeah, it, it's definitely, um, <laughs> it's not hard to see, I think, how multiple cheesecakes a month and an eating disorder might actually be compatible. Um, yeah, it's, it's when I was kind of in my mid-teens, I started just having a really difficult relationship with food and with my body. I think a lot of teenagers go through this. I've always focused myself a lot on whatever I do. And I think food and kind of that side of things became something that got my whole focus. So it was pretty intense. And I spent a huge amount of energy thinking about food and what I would eat or wouldn't eat or fantasizing about food and then denying it to myself. It was it was all over the place. And that continued for maybe five, six years in a pretty intense way. And then I managed to figure things out a bit better. But um, yeah, it was really, really tough. And I think that's kind of underpinned a lot of the way that I approach food now and have been writing about food since then, because I know that it can be so, so difficult to eat in an uncomplicated way, to follow your appetite and all of that. So that is really at the core of the way I think about food now is stripping away the shame and actually foregrounding like pleasure in food. And I think you did that really well in Eat Up, your last book. Uh, it's such an incredible book. Obviously, you, you chronicle a lot of the, the stories that you, you kind of just told us about in a bit more detail in that, but also kind of try and help us all deconstruct what it means to be able to take pleasure in food. One of the things I think that I really respected you for and appreciated you for in the book but also kind of more widely is how it kind of took an aim at wellness culture which I heard you very recently (laughs) describe as repackaged diet culture in a seductive form what is it that you found or find so challenging about wellness as a concept oh I mean it's really hard to talk about because it, it sounds like you're um you're, you're picking a fight with something that's common sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, it's called wellness. Why should anyone have a problem with uh, people feeling well? Like, it makes me seem like the boogeyman. But um, it here's the thing. It, it's not just about that, is it? Because otherwise it would be, it would be simple and it wouldn't be an, a hugely profitable industry. So when I take aim at wellness, I think what I'm really looking at is the kind of insidious stuff that is like um we're going to help you to get the glow we're going to help you to 
shine more than ever before. We're going to help you to feel great in your body. But when the subtext to all of that is we're going to help you lose weight or we're going to help you be like super lithe and muscly or whatever it is. So I think these these things, these ideas come in such like peppy, upbeat, fun form. It's really easy to get sucked in by them. But so often there's that subtext and and I think it can be really difficult for people to resist. And I think it can be really damaging if you get sucked into that. And then you kind of, you come to believe that you should never bloat, that you should never have a spot on your face, that you should never have frizzy hair, that you should never have a wobble. And that all of this is to do with like self-expression and happiness and all of these things. So it is just a lot of it is diet culture, weight loss culture, but with the, this really fun sisterhood kind of vibe to it yeah absolutely and I think I think it's something that probably all of us at, at, at various points especially at its peak you know kind of found ourselves not necessarily buying into but you know we were you know we're all part of kind of society so it's hard not to be influenced by it you know and then I think I started especially after reading a lot of your stuff being like I've always felt a bit uncomfortable like this but can't put my finger on why and I think one of the things that I've always felt really frustrated by is how wellness food culture actually seems to kind of really ignore issues of kind of class and poverty which are social issues that massively affect like our health and wellness and so there just always felt like there's this like cognitive dissonance between how it's presented and then actually the reality of people's lives I think that's exactly right I, I think that is a huge huge blind spot for for this wellness stuff and I actually think that it's a blind spot in, in food more generally. I think we put so much emphasis, and I include myself in this, we put so much emphasis on individual diets, individual lifestyles, individual people with individual kitchens. And we are not very good at keeping in our sights the bigger structures that kind of underpin all of that. So how much, um, for example, you know, stuff like uh, universal credit being cut, how much is that affecting how much people can eat? And what about how, where people who have to share flats because rents are really high or something like that? How much is that affecting how much they can actually get into the kitchen and do any cooking to start with? So there are huge things that shape our food lives. And I think it's really easy to get sucked into individualizing it all. But we we are part of these bigger structures and they have a massive influence. Do you think wellness is on its way out? Like, you know, do you feel the pandemic has shifted some of this kind of influencer perfect lifestyle stuff? I, I do think that some of that stuff has shifted. Yes. The standards have, have risen a bit for what we expect from ourselves and other people in terms of like body shaming and, and things like that. But, um, you know, there's always things, there's always things. I mean, just right now, even there's still like, there's so much stigma around weight, around fatness. It, there's so much judgment around what people eat, even though we've already been through the mill with all of this stuff. So yeah, I, I don't think the fight's over yet, but things have improved. There's so many, I think, inspiring like tidbits in this conversation that we've had. I'm always curious uh, because I love to learn from other people. Who inspires you? You know, for example, I know from your writing uh, that you love a lot of movies, don't you? And you've always like 
connected film and food really well like where do you go to for inspiration I guess you know we all need to fill our creative well don't we yeah I mean that that is it for me like with with food stuff I find it most interesting and most fulfilling when it intersects with other parts of life I think maybe that's why I would kind of struggle to come up with like a food personality who's my hero although I have been quite public about calling Nigel say to my dad but that's (laughs) that's an aside but yeah I love food when it intersects with other things when it's there in intersection with culture and history and our social lives and all of these things that's when it becomes really interesting for me I've never been that interested in zooming in on just cooking or just like you know gastronomy and science of food and stuff like that so I like to enrich my food life honestly I, I watch I watch films, I watch TV, anything that kind of looks at food, even just tangentially and uses it to say something about who people are and what they stand for. I think you see so much of that in in any kind of media food is used as a shorthand. And these kinds of tiny little moments that are almost just like, you know, some a food stylist had to go on set for half an hour one day to put a cheese roll in the frame. Like that is the kind of stuff that I look for and I enjoy and I I enjoy those contexts. It's about food in context for me every time and that's where I get my kind of inspiration. Do you watch Bake Off? I can't, you know. <laughs> I, I really can't. I it, it it really stresses me out. <laughs> it's yeah. Do you think you'd like would you do it again? Like yeah, how do you relate to that whole experience now? It's a tricky one because it was a really, really good experience and it's it's given me so much. And obviously I don't want to be, I, I know that I would never be where I am without Bake Off. So actually it was a great experience. I'm grateful for it. But also I would never do it again. No. <laughs> like it, it, it's weird to kind of balance those two truths in, in my mind, but yeah, it, it was it was a moment. You know, I was at university. I was kind of at a loose end. I wasn't really enjoying my course. So I just took a leap of faith and I did this TV show. Um, but TV is definitely, it's such a vulnerable thing to do. And you're so visible and you're, you're judged, not just for kind of the bakes you do or whatever, but the entirety of who you are, or, or at least who people think you are. And I definitely wouldn't let myself in for that kind of scrutiny again, I don't think. It's very, you need such a thick skin, I think, to do telly. I always feel that. I have an extremely thin skin. Yeah, me too. And I feel like, especially (laughs) now with like social media stuff, I really remember like one of my formative, like formative TV experiences, obviously I had like a very different world. So I kind of came from like human rights activism. And I remember I was on like the 10 o'clock live show or something on channel four, this like comedy show. And it was Benghazi had just been attacked in Libya and we were kind of debating whether we'd have like military intervention. And I was like, like the voice, the lone voice on that particular panel talking about kind of the challenges of military intervention and, you know, going in with that plan and like the chaos and the, all of this stuff. And on social media afterwards, you know, that the pylon of criticism, I was so young at the time and I found it really affecting. And then, you know, you just have to, kind of distance yourself from what goes on yeah I think it's it's a difficulty that's that's maybe to do with the format of, of tv that so much of it is about being likable or personable even if that doesn't necessarily mean good <laughs> were you were you one of the years of bake-off you know you hear about some years that really bond 
and have kind of gone through it together and regularly meet up. We, are, are you still in contact with your your Bake Off year? Or um, not so much, not so much. But you know what? That is that's my fault, and and I would fully recognise it as my fault. I think when we first. Uh, finished the series we did meet up we did meet up a couple of times a few of us like sometimes all together sometimes separately and I think a few of them are still still in touch but for me I think the problem was that I was what 2021 and it was such a stressful experience not the actual filming of the show which was lovely because I really enjoyed meeting those people that I was on it with and I thought they were all lovely the problem was that when it went out, when the show aired and, and getting that attention. And I found it really overwhelming. I found it massively destabilizing and it kind of made me scared and sad and angry and paranoid and all of these things. And actually, the last thing I wanted to do against that backdrop was to hang out with the people that I'd done the show with. So, you know, that's that's my fault. That's that's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I, I should have actually I probably could have and should have used them as a support. But because it was so stressful, I just wanted nothing to do with the whole thing, with the whole kind of bake off institution. So I kind of, yeah, I stepped back and I disappeared. But that's that's understandable when you were under the pressure that you were, that, you know, different people react um, differently and, you know, the way you reacted was, you know, right for you at the time. Makes complete sense to me. Yeah. So Ruby, I ask everyone a question. Um, what is your kitchen ingredient that, you know, you can't function in your kitchen without that's always there? Oh, um, what do I have to have? Let me think. I mean, if I'm being honest, I think it's probably butter. Is that too simple to say? No, but I, no. no, it isn't because mine would, mine would be olive oil. So yeah. I don't think it is. <laughs> no, I'm, nice. Is it, is it salted? Here's the thing. Okay. I know people get quite upset about salted butter because they say, oh, the quality's worse. It's salted and, and they use that to mask the fact that the quality's worse. I'm actually just, if, if I have to have one, one thing that I kind of fall back on in my kitchen, I'm going to use salted butter because it's delicious on toast it's easy for me I can even make cakes with it which really benefit from the salt anyway mm. so yeah it's, it's got to be salted butter it is the start of so many good stories brilliant should we do a bit of kitchen grilling Alison I think it is time for kitchen grill uh this is just a quick questions feel free to expand but um tea or coffee um okay tea or co- it's got to be tea uh, because coffee makes me absolutely buzz. I am highly strong enough without coffee. So, yeah. <laughs> Fried or poached? Poached. Poached. Because I, I don't like, I, I, I get I quite easy. I love most foods, but eggs make me absolutely wretch if they're not, not just so. And poached feels safer to me. Ah, okay. Bacon or smoked salmon? Um, bacon. Bacon. Do you have a favourite way of having it? Uh, no, no, I just, uh, I just love bacon. I just thought that that would suffice. I just really That's it. it. Fruit, fruit or veg? <laughs> oh God. Um, actually vegetables. There's actually a, I have a joke with my friends that if I'm feeling really, really good one day, I'll eat fruit with my mouth, which is to say I won't put it in a crumble or a cake or something. So yeah, vegetables, I think I prefer. <laughs> Mash or chips? Oh God, chips! Chips. I know the answer to this one: butter or olive oil. Yeah, it has to be butter. But I am a massive fan and appreciator of olive oil. Good. A crisps or chocolate? 
chocolate. I've got a raging sweet tooth. Mm. Now scones, jam first or cream? I actually couldn't care less. <laughs> I could not care less. Really? No, it's all the same to me. Some I have tried it both ways just to be sure, but um, I'm not a connoisseur. I just absolutely love food. So yeah. As it comes. Starter or pudding? Or pudding every time. Or graze or feast? Oh, um, do you know what? I think feast. Mm. I, th- I think the the sight of something spectacular on the table is just is part of the um, joy of eating. So yeah, the atmosphere. That's it, Ruby. Thank you for your kitchen grill. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us on the Life on a Plate podcast. It was great to talk to you about your book cook as you are recipes for real life hungry cooks and messy kitchens so thanks so much ruby it's been a real pleasure thank you so much for talking to me thank you you've been listening to life on a plate from waitrose with me yasmin khan thank you to my co-host alison okavy and our guest ruby tando If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find more like it by subscribing to Life on a Plate wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the series, go visit waitrose.com forward slash podcast. (laughs) 